All right, so we're going to talk today about Daniel's explosive prophecies. If we had uh, a longer amount of time, we might consider diving into Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9 altogether, but I'm going to focus on Daniel 9 because it's a really profound prophecy that relates to the end times and the chart that we were talking about yesterday, especially during the Q&A time on that seven-year tribulation. But let me put Daniel in historical perspective for you. Uh, Daniel uh, lived and wrote during the about 6th century or so B.C. primarily. Uh, Daniel is, is pretty easy to chart out. Um, a good uh, tool to use when studying the Scriptures when you pick a book is outline it. Go through it and outline it, the argument of the author. Uh, we tend to proof text a lot. We pull a scripture out of, out of context and think the Bible was written in these little bumper sticker snippets. But the Bible, of course, was written uh, ultimately through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with a divine author, God. But each book of the Bible is, is written for a purpose, making a point. And uh, so in chapter 1 of Daniel, we get introduced to Daniel and his integrity. And then chapters 2 through 7 deal with God's program for the world. Uh, which the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. And then chapters 8 through 12, God's program for Israel. We talked last night about how Israel is so vital as the apple of God's eye and the key nation in God's plan. And then this is my chart of Daniel. And by the way, any chart that you see on the screen through any of these sessions is available in our uh, chart book at the resource table. But uh, the theme of Daniel we get from Daniel 4.17, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. We talked a lot about the kingdom yesterday, didn't we? God's kingdom program, how it was hinted at in Genesis 3, explicitly promised in Genesis 12, and reiterated again and again through every Old Testament book, announced by Christ and, and John the Baptist, talked about extensively through Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, reiterated on the very day Jesus rose to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne of God in heaven, the right hand of the throne of God in heaven is not the Davidic throne, it's the throne in waiting. And Christ is waiting until the Father says it's time. And He comes back. Then He takes the long-awaited Messianic throne in the kingdom someday. And, uh, and that's what we're looking forward to. So the Bible is all about God's kingdom program. And Daniel, in particular, talks about the timing and, and the different pagan nations that will be ruling the world for periods of time as we wait for the one true King of kings and Lord of lords to come back and rule on the throne. So uh, very quickly, you see... Uh, in chapter 1, again, Daniel's integrity. Chapter 2 is the famous statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, chapter 3 is the fiery furnace and the three Hebrew children. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar's in weird uh, humiliation in chapter 4, the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5, then the Daniel in the lion's den. Then you get to chapter 7, and it's Daniel has his vision, which is basically the same message that Nebuchadnezzar got in chapter 2 just coming at it from a different uh, perspective. And then uh, chapters 8 through 12 deal with both near-term and long-term uh, rule, um, especially with Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler. And then chapter 9, which we're going to look at in this first hour, is the famous 490-year plan of Daniel. And then chapters 10 through 12 give us a lot of information about uh, the Antichrist. So just to because we don't have time to talk about it, just to kind of give you the meaning of Daniel 2 and 7. In Daniel 2, you see Daniel's or Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, uh, which gives us the empires that will rule over the world until ultimately Christ comes back. 
And, uh, and this is why so many liberal scholars who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God reject Daniel, because he was so spot on writing hundreds of years before these things unfolded. Uh, but he was living in the time of the Babylonian Empire. Then he prophesied the Medo-Persians would take over next, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And then he talks about the revived Roman Empire, not a fifth kingdom, but an extension of the fourth kingdom. And that's what's going to happen, as we shall see in uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, so the question then on Daniel's mind when you get to chapter 9 is this. So to put it in context, Daniel is uh, coming out of the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah the prophet had predicted that Israel would be taken captive for 70 years. Very specifically, he told God's people, you're going to be held captive by the Babylonians for 70 years. So Daniel looks at the calendar on the wall, realizes 70 years is almost up, and so he prays and he asks God, what's next? He says, Lord, you said there would be 70 years of captivity, but we know you're a faithful and true God. We know that you're a God who keeps his word and his covenant. We know that we've got a kingdom that's promised. What comes next? What's next in your, in your timetable? And Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which we call the 70 weeks prophecy, I'm going to explain that in a minute, is God's answer to Daniel's prayer. God hears Daniel's prayer and says, okay, I'll give you the next phase of my plan. And so really the theme not only of Daniel, but of when we get to the New Testament and when we talk about the rapture in the second hour today, is can God be trusted? I mean, let's face it, it's been 2,000 years, we're still waiting on the kingdom. Where is it, right? Um, Jesus said, look up, be watchful. Uh, He's promised to come back. Uh, He told the disciples in the upper room, I'm going to come back and receive you to where I am. The earliest reference to the rapture anywhere on planet earth was Thursday night in the upper room uh, before Jesus was the very night he was betrayed. Um, But that hasn't happened yet. And so if Daniel teaches us anything, and indeed, as we said yesterday in the first session, if, if the study of Bible prophecy teaches us anything, it's that God can be trusted. And he doesn't always work on our timetable, but he's coming back, and this kingdom is coming, and that gives us hope. So we talked about the plan of the ages last night. Um, We talked about how the church age is the last days. That's the term that Scripture uses to refer to the present age. The last days is not the same thing as the end times. The end times is that 16% of the Bible that hasn't been fulfilled yet, the the 16% of biblical prophecy that awaits the, the future. It starts with the rapture, and it will end when... God makes all things new in the eternal state with the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end times. The last days is the age in which we're living. And if you look at that chart, you can see how it makes sense that God would call it the last days because the only age to come after this age is the kingdom. And so, you know, I often uh, think about how amazing it is and what a blessing it is to be living in this present age, right? I mean, what if we had been born in the days of Noah? Um, You know, unless our last name was Mr. Noah, we wouldn't have survived the flood. You know, what if we'd have been living in the age of the law? Um, but we, got, we get to live in this present age, the church age, um, where Jew and Gentile are one and the Holy Spirit binds us together as the common bond and we have unmitigated access to the Father in heaven through the new and living way opened up for us by Christ. But not only are those blessings a reality, but it's also powerful to recognize that Because we live in the last days, at any moment, that's what the doctrine of imminency teaches, the biblical doctrine of imminency is that the rapture could happen at any moment, Christ could come back. And so we're we're really excited and 
looking forward to that, and it's something that should fill us with hope. So I want to uh, look now at Daniel's, what I call Daniel's 490-year prophecy. And you will be amazed at how precisely God's Word can be fulfilled and is fulfilled, and, and you can take it literally. Um, so the, the focus of this prophecy is on this seven-year period. So I've used this chart a lot. You've been seeing it a lot on the screen. Uh, it's obviously not drawn to scale. For example, the church age, there you can see the cross. And then, of course, the church started on the day of Pentecost after Calvary, some 50 days or so. And, uh, and that began the church age, and we're still in that church age, and it's lasted 2,000 years. The part that I've highlighted in yellow is just seven years. So clearly the chart is not intended to be taken at scale. But this seven-year period is all about, is what Daniel is talking all about in his uh, prophecy, at one seven-year period called the 70th week of Daniel. Now, we call it that because the New King James translates Daniel 9.24 this way. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's talking about Israel, and of course, the holy city is Jerusalem. Seventy weeks. So the question then is, what is a week? Well, how many of you recognize the Bible was not written originally in English? If that's news to you, I'm sorry to share that with you. The Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and some portions in Aramaic, a few portions during the Babylonian exile. And then, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. So every English Bible that we have is a translation of the original language. And that word weeks is the Hebrew word shabua. Now, that's a fun word to say, shabua. Let's say that together, shabua. That just means weeks. And it's used 20 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it literally means, as you see on the screen, seven consecutive days, or depending on the context, it could mean seven consecutive years. So context always determines meaning. That's true in any language, not just Greek or Hebrew. Every language, you must uh, identify the meaning of words based on context. So a dictionary, uh, uh, contrary to common thought, does not give us the meaning of words, right? I could pass a dictionary out to everyone and then say, what does the word trunk mean? And we still wouldn't know, would we? Because you might say part of an elephant. You might say a big suitcase. You might say the back part of a car. Someone else might say the part of the tree that holds the branches up. See, we don't know what trunk means until we see it in a context. Now, if I said that elephant has a long trunk, now you know what I mean. So Shabua has to be interpreted in its context. And the first thing we know from the context is Daniel was already thinking in terms of years, not days, because he asked uh, God, what's next after the 70 years? But secondly, uh, as we're going to see in a moment, when you look at the prophecy and how it was fulfilled, it absolutely only makes sense if it was years. But Shabuah often means years. For example, if you remember the story of uh, J- uh, Jacob and how he had to work for his father-in-law Laban for seven years, in Hebrew, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 29, the word is Shabua. Jacob worked for Laban for a Shabua, seven years. And then he, cored, uh, he, he of course, uh, Laban pulled the old switcheroo on him, and he ended up having to work for another Shabua in order for him to get Rachel, right? So Shabua means seven years. So if we go back to Daniel 9:24, 70 weeks, a week equals seven years. So 77 year periods means 490 years. So what we have in Daniel, Jeremiah had revealed a 70-year plan. 
through Daniel, God revealed the next phase of His plan, which is a 490-year plan, 70 Shabuas or 77-year periods. And, and the exciting thing that I'm sure the children of Israel love to hear and that we should be excited about as we hear it today, it's still reading it 2,600 years later, is that that 490-year plan brings us to the long-awaited fulfillment of God's kingdom program, the inauguration of the king. So we didn't have time to look at the full covenant program yesterday with the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the Palestinian covenant. But one of the things that we need to understand about God's kingdom program, and I think it was sort of inferred from everything we were saying, is that the whole covenant program has been side sealed and delivered. It's been ratified. In fact, the last piece of the puzzle was the new covenant, which was ratified at Calvary. That's the reason the night in the upper room, the night he was betrayed, just hours before he was crucified, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the shedding of his blood, the Lamb of God, actually ratified the, the covenant program of God, and it is now ready to go. Uh, we can sort of understand the difference between ratifying and inaugurating in, in terms of the United States political process. Now, this analogy is getting harder and harder to use because the political process is getting so messed up. But historically, with few exceptions, we vote every four years for a president in November. And again, nor in a normal world, which there's nothing normal about this world anymore, that vote is ratified a few weeks later. But the president doesn't get inaugurated until January. So we are in a prophetic sense, living in that lame duck period, you might call it, because the kingdom program has been fully ratified. We're just waiting for it to be inaugurated, and it will not be inaugurated until the king comes back and takes the throne. And so what Daniel is saying is, I'm about to outline for you 490 years at the end of which the king will be taking the throne. So let's go through this in painstaking detail here, and I hope hopefully you can follow me. I'm going to try to kind of map this out for you and look at what happens in this 490-year plan. And the key to understanding the prophecy is to look at the time words, and I've highlighted them in yellow. The first one that comes up is from. Daniel says, know therefore and understand that from, and just to keep it simple, we're going to call this A, from A. That's the starting point of the 490-year plan. From A, which he defines as the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until, that's the next time word, Messiah the Prince shall be 69 weeks. So from A to B will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us why. God didn't tell Daniel why. He separates the first 69 seven-year periods into two sections, seven and 62 but there's no gap of time between them. They go together. It's a 69-year, uh, 69 seven-year periods, okay? So from A to B, we'll conclude 69 of the 70 Shabuas, 69 of the 77-year periods, okay? So if we do the math, uh, we're dealing, again, a seven-year period with a 62-year period, makes, makes 69 seven-year periods. So let's just make this obvious and, 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 and sketch it out. Seven-year period is 49 years. 62 Shabuas is 434 years. So we've got 49 plus 43. We're dealing with 483 years. Remember we called it a 490-year plan? Well, from A to B, as he outlines, 
483 of that will be taken care of. Okay. So we, we've, we're dealing with it from A to B is 483 years. Now, I'm going to come back to this, so if, you're, if, you're, if it's a lot of information, we're going to come back and go with, over each segment one at a time. But I just want to get through the full 490 years. So we've gone from A to B, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, or until he arrives, is 483 years. Then the next time word we see in the text is after. After that, after, sometime after the 483 years are done, the Messiah will be cut off. We'll call this C. And the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist who Jesus makes reference to in the Olivet Discourse, uh, will destroy, uh, actually that's not the Antichrist, the Antichrist signed the peace treaty, but after the 483 years, uh, the, Messiah, the prince who is to come, that's the Roman general Titus who's going to destroy uh, Jerusalem after the Messiah has come, that's C, two things will happen. After the 483 years, two things are going to happen. Messiah is going to be cut off, crucified, and the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Then we have a couple more things happening here. Then, sometime after that, those two events, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with one, for one week, one Shabuah. That's that word Shabuah again. So we're dealing again with D. We'll call this D. So one Shabuah is a seven-year period. And then at the end of that, the consummation will happen. The king comes and the kingdom is inaugurated. So we've got five elements of the 490-year plan. Here they are. The command to restore Jerusalem starts the clock ticking on 490 years. Then the Messiah comes. Then he's cut off and Jerusalem is destroyed. Then there's a peace treaty signed. And then at the end of that period of time, the consummation occurs and the Most Holy One is anointed. Now, what Daniel is telling us, and it's very clear, as we just outlined it in the text, if you look at those time markers, is that from A to B is 483 years, and from D to E is seven years. But I want you to focus in on C there. There's no time aspects associated with that. Daniel simply says that sometime after the 483 years is over, a couple of things are going to happen. The Messiah will be cut off, and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then again, he doesn't tell us exactly when, but sometime after that, the peace treaty is going to be signed, and that starts the clock ticking once again. So it's very, very important to understand that we've not even looked at the New Testament yet. Just based on Daniel's prophecy, there is a natural demanded gap of time between the first 69 Shabuas, or 483 years, and the final Shabuah, or seven years. There's a gap of time there. So let's chart it out this way. Maybe this will help us conceptualize it. So Daniel's 490-year plan starts with A and goes to B, and that's 483 years. Now here's where it gets really amazing because we see that God's plan to Daniel, issued 600 years before Christ, is fulfilled precisely to the day. Right? So here's what happened. We know what A is. We know when that occurred historically. We know it from Scripture, and we also know it from extra-biblical historical literature. The, de the decree from Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem occurred on March 5th, 444 B.C. That's not a fact in dispute. Now, if you do the math, a Hebrew year back then in the Hebrew calendar was 360 days. So again, doing the math, 483 years times 360 days per year, you get to 173,880 days. If you start historically at what we now know is, was March, is, is considered March 5th, 440, 
4 BC when they redid the calendar. If you start at that day and you march forward 173,880 days, guess where you arrive? You arrive precisely at the date of the triumphal entry, something that we are celebrating today, uh, March 30th, 33 AD. So in other words, Daniel said from the signing of the peace treaty till the Messiah comes, and, and that's when he formally, in fulfillment of prophecy, rode into Jerusalem, and again had Israel received her king and crowned him with a crown instead of crowning him with thorns, the kingdom would have come immediately. But they didn't. They crowned him with thorns. They crucified the Savior. And, and, so, and, and, that, and Daniel says that's what's going to happen. So from the first 483 years, it was 173,880 days, it, it happened exactly to the day like God's Word said it would happen. Now, let me go back and, and give you some key dates of the time of Christ and of Passion Week, kind of appropriate since we're dealing with Passion Week. Uh, we know, by the way, we, we, this is not on the screen, but we know Christ was born in the winter of 5-4 B.C., sometime between December of 5 B.C., maybe January of 4 B.C. Remember, in the B.C., they count down, right? So how do we know that? Well, first of all, people that are a lot smarter of me than me have gone back and devoted their life to redating the apostolic age, and, and we have key benchmark dates that we know when they happened historically, such as uh, the uh, Artaxerxes decree and the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem Council and many other the death of Herod, many other dates. And you pinpoint those, you overlay that with the biblical data, and you can put together a pretty clear timeline. So Christ was born in the winter of 5-4 B.C. How do we know that? Because Herod died in April of 4 B.C., and Herod was still living when Christ was born because um, he's the one that issued the decree to kill all the babies two years and under. So Herod was going crazy. He was losing his mind. He was near the end of his life. He issued that decree after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then he died a few months later in April of 4 B.C. So Jesus was born in 5-4 B.C. He began his ministry uh, in 30 A.D., he ministered for three and a half years, made uh, four trips to Jerusalem, and we now find uh, that we're in the final week of his life here, and he arrives in, at Passover week in the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethany on Saturday, March 28, 33 A.D. And then the triumphal entry, we celebrated on Sunday, but historically it actually occurred Monday of that week. He rode into town on Monday, March 30th. Then on Tuesday is when he cursed the fig tree and he overturned the tables of the money changers and he had that controversy in the temple there. And then on Wednesday, we talked about this last night, he preaches that famous sermon in response to the disciples' question, well, when are you going to come back? If the temple's going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another, when are you coming? And he gives them those incredible signs uh, to look for that will occur right before he comes back. And what's fascinating is that Olivet Discourse that you see right there, Wednesday, April 1st, Jesus quotes Daniel, the prophecy we're actually looking at right now, by name, because Daniel's 70th week, that final Shabuah, that final seven-year period, is, is what the Bible elsewhere refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble, the overflowing scourge, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the great day of wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, and many other references in the Bible to that final seven-year period just before the Lord returns. And that's exactly what the disciples wanted to know. Tell us what to look for. How will we know you're coming back? He says, here it is. When you see these things happening over this period of time, you know my coming is soon. Then, of course, on Thursday of that week, he meets in the upper room, probably John Mark's mother's room, uh, house is what we can uh, speculate. 
uh, and he, he celebrates the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper, washes the disciples' feet. Then he's betrayed as he goes off to the garden later that night, arrested, tried by Friday. He's laid in the tomb on Friday, April 3rd, and he's in the tomb three days. Uh, the, the Hebrew phrase, three days and three nights, is an idiom. It's not the same thing that we use in English. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. I've got a document uh, on our website, or if you email me, I can send it to you, that explains, it's just two pages, but explains how the phrase three days and three nights in Hebrew means any part of any day or any part of any night. So a lot of people get hung up because they say, oh, he was supposed to be in the ground three days and three nights. That's 72 hours, like it's some kind of a cruise advertisement of you know six days, seven nights or something. No, it, 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 so they say he couldn't have died on Friday and risen on Sunday. No, he absolutely died on Friday and was raised on Sunday. He was in the tomb on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, three days and three nights, according to the Hebrew idiom. But anyway, he rose from the dead on Sunday, April 5th, which we will celebrate this year next week on April 4th. Uh, and then for 40 days, he has, appears to thousands of people after the resurrection. And then um, sometime during that time, he gives the Great Commission. And then on May 14th, he stands on the Mount of Olives and he ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. The disciples are promised from the men in white raiment that he will return in just like they saw him go in the same manner. And then 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the church is born when Peter preaches his famous uh, sermon. So what we're dealing with in Daniel's 490-year prophecy is the triumphal entry, that, that coming of the Messiah, which was marked by the triumphal entry. And Daniel had told, God had told Daniel that that event would occur precisely 483 Hebrew years after the decree was issued. And guess what? That's exactly when it occurred. And then going back to our timeline, C, we said, was some things that happened after that 483 years were complete. And indeed, just like Daniel predicted, these things did happen. He, he, the triumphal entry occurred on Monday. By Friday, just four days later, the Messiah was cut off exactly like Daniel said he would be. Not only that, but a few decades later, uh, on, in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, again, just like Daniel said it would be. And then, he says, uh, the next time marker was then, the Antichrist will sign a peace treaty for one final seven-year period. And so everything you see on the screen in blue relates to that 490-year plan. Everything you see in green, make sure the colors came up. Sometimes I'm at places and the projector's all washed out and I'm talking about red and something and they're looking at it and it's like pink or orange. So yeah, no, green look, comes through great on this projector. So everything in green is what's in the gap of time. Again, Daniel's prophecy itself demands a gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week, or the first 483 years and the start of the final seven-year period. Now, what we see happen in God's Word is over time in the progress of Revelation, as God reveals more information, we come along to the book of Ephesians and we find out that the church, which is a mystery a mystery is something previously unrevealed. You don't find the church ever mentioned in the Old Testament. It was not information that was revealed until the New Testament. And God inserts the church in that gap of time. So the New Testament can never change the meaning of the Old Testament because that would mean God was a liar, but it can give us more information. Daniel had said there were a couple of things that were going to happen in that gap of time. The New Testament comes along and says, oh yeah, there's something else that's going to happen. This parenthesis, this church age, and, and that's not forcing that into Daniel's prophecy. Daniel didn't tell us how long it would be until that final seven years started. 
He just says it's going to start when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty. So we don't know when the tribulation will start. As we read the New Testament and we read promises of God like 1 Thessalonians 1.10 or 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that tell us we're, the church will be rescued before the great day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period. We know that we are not going to be here when the tribulation starts, uh, but we don't know when it'll start. So we're living 483 years into Daniel's 490-year prophecy. We're living in that gap of time, waiting for the final seven years to be fulfilled. And you can certainly expect that if the first 483 years were fulfilled precisely to the day, that those final seven years are literal too. Sometimes we come across people that suggest that, well, yeah, I know the first 483 years were literal, but the final seven is metaphorical. Well, that would make no sense. None of the prophecies that Daniel refers to, neither Jeremiah or these uh, prophecies in Daniel 2 or 7, were figurative or metaphorical. They all precisely happened in history just like the Bible lays, out, lays them out. So, so here we are. We're still waiting patiently for that kingdom. And uh, we're, you know, the next great event, as I said last night, which we're going to talk about in the worship hour, is the rapture. Uh, and then the rapture, as you see, does not start the final seven-year period that Daniel talked about. It's just that once the rapture happens, then the Antichrist will rise to prominence, take over the world, and at some point, most likely very soon after the rapture, he will sign that treaty. When that treaty is signed, that starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period. And it will take us up to the consummation when the Most Holy One is anointed and takes the throne, just like God's Word said it would. So uh, where does that put us? What's the practical application? I'll just finish with this, and then I'll take some questions. Um, well, we're still waiting. And like we talked about at the outset yesterday, all of the, the end times prophecy in Scripture should motivate us to, to live for the Lord and look expectantly uh, toward His return. I pointed out in Hebrews chapter 2 how uh, God's Word says, God has not put the world to come of which we speak. That the book, writer of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, could have been Paul, but, um, well, I know who it was, but if you... You know, if you want to know, you can give me $20 and I'll tell you. But uh, most people don't know. Um, so uh, he, whoever it was tells us that, that, that the motivation for enduring persecution, the motivation for enduring the hardships and trials of life is the expected return of Christ and His rule and reign on earth over the kingdom. Uh, and, and the writer of Hebrews talks about this a lot. For example, in chapter 6, he says, When God made a promise to Abraham... He could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, sure, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Uh, and, and later on in chapter 6, he says, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. That's you and me. Remember we talked about the different seeds of Abraham yesterday? Well, we're spiritual seed of Abraham. And so we need to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. What hope? The hope of the promised kingdom. <laughs> See, we tend to boil everything down after 2,000 years in the church age to heaven and hell. But did you realize, and I talk about this in a, in a, actually in a footnote in Getting the Gospel Wrong, one of my books, when we talk about going to heaven when we die, that's really a misnomer because the eternal dwelling place of the saved is the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom, the kingdom, not just heaven. And it's okay that we say that because the Bible talks about 
a lot about heaven. But so when we say that we mean the eternal life in the presence of our Lord, but we just need to understand that that ultimate consummation is after God destroys the old sin-stricken earth and recreates it in sinless perfection is the new heavens and the new earth. Again, if you look at this chart, you see the kingdom over here involves a thousand years on this present earth, but the in perpetuity and eternity with the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal state, all of that is part of the kingdom. So we have this hope, both sure and steadfast. The writer goes on in chapter 10 of Hebrews, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Promised what? The kingdom. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, I'm not talking about the world in which we live. I'm talking about the world to come. That's what should motivate you. Again, since we are receiving a kingdom in Hebrews 12, which should not be shaken, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And that final seven-year period that Daniel talks about, that final Shabuah and what we call the tribulation, is the outpouring of God's wrath. I'm going to talk about this. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I'm going to talk about it in, a, in our rapture discussion during the service. But, you know, right now, we live in a fallen world of injustice. It is an inequitable world. It is not fair. Innocent children die tragically. Dirty, rotten, filthy criminals get off scot-free. There's nothing at all that we could say is fair about this world. It's a world where Satan is the prince. He holds sway over the whole world, 1 John 5 tells us. And a lot of people uh, feel a sense of injustice and anger at God because we all think, God, you're sovereign, you're in full control, why do you allow this to happen? One of the age-old struggles of life is why do bad things happen to good people, right? Well, the tribulation period satisfies that longing within all of us because the tribulation period is God's answer to the problem of sin in the world. It's the wrath of God. In fact, if you, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but in Revelation, when Christ comes back at the end of that seven-year tribulation, the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy, listen to how it's described. Now, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. I have to stop there for a second, because the book of Revelation, which is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline, the devil has done a good job of convincing people it's confusing. It's not confusing at all. It's a piece of cake. Uh, chapters one, chapter 1 introduces it and talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, not revelations. The last book of the Bible is called Revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. And then chapters 2 and 3 is literal seven letters to seven literal churches that Jesus writes, com uh, commending them and re rebuking them in some cases. And then chapters 4 and 5, we're getting ready for the outpouring of God's wrath. And it asks the question, what gives God the right to pour out His wrath on mankind? Who is worthy to open the seals of God's judgment on mankind? Who? And it beautifully says, the Lamb. He is worthy because He shed His blood. And so chapters 4 and 5 are what we call a theodicy, a justification for the wrath of God. And then chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through the end till chapter 19, where we're reading right now, is the wrath of God over a seven-year period, the tribulation period. And if you go back to chapter 6, verse 1, you see this interesting parallel or bookend 
because we just read that in chapter 19, Christ is going to come back riding on a white horse. What does chapter 6 tell us? Verses 1 and 2, it's the first seal, judgment. And we know this is the wrath of God because by the end of chapter 6, they're crying out, hide us from the wrath of God. The great day of His wrath has come, chapter 6, verse 17. And so in chapter 2, the first rider on the horse, it says, Behold, I look, and a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's the Antichrist. That's the unveiling of the Antichrist, the first rider on the first horse. You've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation, the title of the last book of the Bible. The four, four horsemen of the book of Revelation or the apocalypse are the first four sealed judgments as God pours out His wrath. What's the first judgment? The unveiling of the Antichrist. So here we have a rider on a white horse who's then going to wreak havoc and rule the world under satanic control for seven years. Then you get to chapter 19 and notice what it says in verse 11. We just read it. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Well, we've heard that before, haven't we? But notice, he who sat on him was called faithful and true. He's the real deal this time. Not an imposter, but the real deal. And in righteousness, in true righteousness, he judges and makes war. But his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, that's you and me, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Finally, we put off this old man and put on the, the glorified body because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And notice he says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. That's the answer. All of the injustices of life will be made right. No one's pulling anything over on God. No one's going to get away with anything. Now, we're all under the penalty of sin, and it's only by the grace of God, if you've received the free gift of eternal life by faith alone, then you won't have to face the wrath of God. Believers can never face the wrath of God. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. But if you don't receive the free gift paid for by the blood of the Lamb, that's what awaits you. And so all of these cries for justice that have echoed out really since the garden, when people get away with things and horrible things happening in dark smoke-filled rooms that we don't even want to think about, God wins in the end, and they're going to pay for it, right? And so, uh, you know, the book of Revelation gives us that, that hope, and if you ignore the teaching of the return of Christ, you're missing out on the answer to that longing that in our hearts that cries for justice, right? So uh, we'll talk more about the rapture, uh, and I'm going to give you in the worship hour, we're going to have to go fast, but I'll, I can, I've done it before, I, I know I can fit it in. I'm going to give you 10 things that will be true for uh, those that are left behind one minute after the rapture. And seven things that will be true for those who are caught up one minute after the rapture. So, 17-point sermon. I've probably failed my homiletics class. But anyway, I think you'll, you'll benefit from, from those points. 
So we got about three minutes left or so, five minutes. Any questions or comments about anything we talked about? Let me put Daniel's chart back up. Uh, so that's the 490-year plan of Daniel. Any questions? Yes, sir. And what? What about 33? What do you mean? No, no, Jesus was 37 years old when he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the only reason that people historically assumed he was 33 is because when we put, went back in centuries later and kind of redid the calendars, we intended for zero. There really was no zero. It went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., but that was the, the birth of Christ. And so since we know he died in 33 A.D., they assumed he was 33 years old, but they got it wrong. They, they just, I mean, they didn't have, uh, I don't know how they lived back then because they didn't have Google. So they, they, they somehow their research was tainted. And, um, but uh, so, no, he was definitely 37 years old when he died, not 33. So. Anybody else? Come on, I was hoping there'd be a question. Yes, ma'am, thank you. No, it's just for believers. The judgment seat is uh, a special um, blessing. I've got it. I, I had a chart I showed yesterday of the eschatological judgments, but it's uh, it's introduced in Romans fourteen twelve, First Corinthians three, Second Corinthians five, uh, and then it's referenced in every other book of the every writer of the New Testament talks about the rewards for believers. So the bema judgment, which is the judgment seat of Christ, is only for church age believers. And it's not a judgment for to get into heaven or not. It's an evaluation of our faithfulness. And Jesus actually, though he doesn't use the term Bema judgment, alludes to it in Luke 19, the passage I talked about last night, when he says, the king's going to go away for a while. While I'm gone, be a good steward of, of, of what I've given you. And when I come back, I'm going to reward you based on how faithful you were. And so in the kingdom... Some people will have a greater stewardship and be in charge of more. That's another misnomer as we think about heaven as being just all floating around in the clouds, I guess, with wings singing kumbaya or something. No, we're going to be serving the Lord. We're going to be working. We're going to be, it's just going to be in sinless perfection. It's going to be just like the garden. Remember, Adam was given a job before the fall. So work is not a product of the fall. Work is part of God's divine design for humanity. Adam was to tend the garden and to name the animals. So what happened after the fall is now work became difficult and you sweat and you stink and you have all, all kinds of other products of the fall. But when the Bible comes full circle, we're going to be serving in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ and doing things for His pleasure. And so the Rebima judgment, which you referenced, is when we will be rewarded and 1 Corinthians 4 goes on to say it's based on the counsels of our heart, not just what we do, but why we do what we do. And I've often thought that the people that will be the most rewarded are not the ones that you might think of. It's not going to be the who's who list of VIP Christians. It's going to be the little widow that was in her prayer closet six hours a day praying for her pastor. You know, she's going to be rewarded with rewards. But yeah, so that's the beam of judgment. And it's not all people and it's not even all believers. It's only believers of the church age. A unique blessing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's possible, yeah, were you thinking maybe the great white throne judgment? Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's only unbelievers, and that's at the end of the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, uh, 
the great white throne is when every unbeliever of all ages, from Genesis, from, from the garden forward, uh, who didn't believe in Jesus Christ, didn't receive the free gift of eternal life, will stand before the great white throne and be left trying to get into heaven based on their own works. And they can have truckloads full of books that record every good work they did, and it won't be enough. Because entrance into the kingdom is not based upon grading on the curve. You can be in the 99th percentile, and that's not good enough. might be good enough for an SAT score, but it's not good enough to get into heaven. And uh, you have to, there's only one book that matters, the book of life. And if your name is in there, which it is if you've trusted in Christ, then you get into heaven. So, yeah, thanks for that. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, yes. So the Holy Spirit's not absent. So Second Thessalonians 2 says that the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. We're going to talk about that in the worship hour too. So the church, the church today, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, represents a restraining influence on the world. The devil cannot run, do everything he wants because Christians, men and women of faith, stand up and, and stand in the way, and you know whatever it might be. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's omnipresent. He's, he cannot not be somewhere. So he's here, and he's still actively involved in drawing people to faith. The difference is during the tribulation, when someone gets saved, they don't get baptized into the body of Christ, and they're not permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit, just like they weren't in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit's still here. But, but more to your point, you're exactly right. It is going to be much more difficult for people who heard the gospel prior to the rapture and didn't believe it to then believe it after the rapture. But we know some will, in fact, a great multitude will, because Revelation chapter 7 says people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will get saved during the tribulation. So that's an interesting side note. I know we're out of time here, but so a lot of people mistakenly think, well, we know the rapture can't happen soon because there are still unreached people groups, right? Well, remember, there's no promise in Scripture that says everyone on planet Earth will have heard the gospel before the rapture. There is a promise in Scripture, Jesus gave it in Matthew 24, that before the second coming, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel. And that's part of the purpose of the 144,000. So they're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, make sure everyone hears the gospel, everyone will have the opportunity and then Christ comes back, and it, it's all over. So uh, we're supposed to preach the gospel to the othermost parts of the world, and it might reach. The Bible doesn't say that it won't. It just doesn't guarantee us that it will. So we're supposed to be out evangelizing the world, sharing the gospel to everyone we possibly can, but the rapture could happen at any moment. And if it were to happen today, there would still be corners of the earth where people haven't heard the gospel. Uh, yeah. So that's a great. His question was, who evangelized the 144,000? We, it's one of those things that we, we, the Bible is silent on, but we can draw some conclusions based on comparing Scripture with Scripture. What do we know for sure? We know that they, like every human being, must personally believe the gospel. They don't get a pass. They're human beings. They're sons of Adam. They've got to become sons of Christ, right? And so from that, we must assume that somehow the gospel is introduced to them. Now, it may be that God supernaturally drops 144,000 gospel tracks from the sky. He may 
uh, he may, during that time when there's all kinds of signs and wonders going on once again, he may just audibly tell them. We don't know, but somehow they are introduced to the gospel and believe the gospel. And then they're sealed so that they're protected from martyrdom during the Antichrist reign. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great analogy. Paul, you know, met the Lord supernaturally on the road to Damascus. Maybe they're going to meet the Lord in a supernatural encounter. That would probably make the most sense. But wouldn't, there, wouldn't there still be Bibles on earth? Yeah, and of course there'll be Bibles on earth, and maybe they'll pick up one of my books and get saved. I don't know, you know. So someone's bound to buy one of them eventually, you know. <laughs> 